Hello and welcome to the Corporform Corner, where registered dietitians and personal trainers teach you how to optimize your gut health, hormones, and fitness. Our team has utilized the trademark and evidence-based Corporform protocol to transform over 500 lives mentally and physically. Here at Corporform, we have three core values that are family, communication, and care. So if you are ready, subscribe to join our family, communicate with us through our Facebook group to ask questions, and we'll take care of the rest. Please remember this episode should not be used as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. And now, let's get on to this week's question. Welcome to 2023. We hope you all ended 2022 strong and are as excited for 2023 as we are. Today on the show, we brought in Dasha Algonik, who is a registered dietitian and somebody who has built a company named Corpoform. She's also the holder of a bachelor's of science in biology from university of Massachusetts Amherst and a master's of science in nutritional epidemiology at Tufts university. She is extremely qualified when it comes to talking about the things we talk about in this episode. And that is gut health. That is the foundation of our overall health. And so without further ado, please welcome Dasha to the cure collective podcast. We hope you all enjoy. Welcome to the Cure Collective, Dasha. It's great to connect with you. I'm excited to talk about everything that we're going to talk about today, but first and foremost, just thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to connect with a fellow entrepreneur. We have so yeah. much in common we didn't even know. Yes, yes. Entrepreneurs, we all kind of tick the same and we all end up experiencing the same same ups and, ups and downs with different, maybe different facade on them. So I am here to here to support the journey in any way I can. First question that I want to ask you is why do you do what you do? What led you to your current pursuits and what it is your current reality right now? Why are, why are you here? Great question. So my background is in nutritional epidemiology and I've always been super fascinated. When I started college, I was always athletic when I grew up. When I started college, I got into bodybuilding, sports, athletics, trying to fill that void. I was a dancer all my life. I always had a team sport environment. And so I needed something, an outlet to get better at progress in, etc. So I got really fascinated in how to optimize exercise. Like how do you build the best muscle almost. And I'm a geek. So when it comes to biochemistry, that's what I just absolutely loved learning. How do we change our physique and our long-term health based off of what we eat and how we exercise? And this is two very different things because bodybuilding, how we look, that's not longevity. That's quite honestly the opposite of longevity. So it's very, very, like I got so fascinated into understanding the differences between the two, understanding what that exercise and optimal intake looked like for longevity and true fitness from a scientific perspective, right? Fitness, when we talk about genetics and you learned in biology was how long can you live and how many babies can you have? How well can you replicate in order to spread your gene? So how can you improve your fitness via longevity, right? So I got super fascinated in that. I My whole background growing up to high school, college, I did internship after internship in laboratory research, clinical research. I did studied malaria, studied like on mice, studied in wet labs, studied in focus groups, whatever type of research there was, I was involved in it. And I was trying to understand and be the next researcher. 
So I'm too much of a people person. I couldn't stand that. So I stopped doing that. And I was like, you know, I'll be a doctor. And then I realized that is just prescribing pills and kind of going by standards of operations instead of directly impacting someone's life based off of what I was most passionate about, which was optimizing your diet and exercise for longevity and for your health. And so I was like, okay, great. Now I get it. I have to be a dietitian in order to do this. And so that's why I became a dietitian after I graduated from Tufts. I got my RD license. And now I just specialize in gut health specifically because I think I'm going to butcher this, but it was either Hippocrates or Socrates, some Greek philosopher who said all disease starts in the gut. And I think that he's absolutely right. I think that most of our living condition comes or most of our diseases get elicited or get or progress in some way due to poor diet or lifestyle factors that cause extra stress on our systems that cause DNA to replicate incorrectly that cause systemic stress that causes that inflammation and really lowering that inflammation is what I work on every single day to with my gut health clients. So that all led me to where I am now. I did go through my own journey with a, with a doctor trying to identify my own gut health issues. And it was an absolute mess <laughs> because if you have any gut issues yourself, you know, you'll go into the doctors, they'll tell you, oh, you have IBS, try Miralax, try this Linzess, here's some blood work, try getting this endoscopy, try getting this colonoscopy and everything keeps coming back negative. And then you're left mm. with like, okay, well, so nothing's wrong with me, but I feel like awful. And it was like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> so I didn't get anything done in the last two years of my life. And so that's why I became so passionate about gut health is because again, I wanted to optimize our longevity, our health, our fitness, everything that's going on. And I knew it started with the biochemistry of how we absorb our macronutrients and how we absorb our micronutrients and mm -hmm. how that fuels our organs. And so that's the nerd in me. <laughs> that's amazing. And I don't know if you know my story, but we are even more similar than you can actually believe. So I'm a former aerospace engineer. I went down the corporate engineering route. I sat in a cubicle and I said, I am not meant to sit in this cubicle and not interact with people. I am a nerd and I love to geek out, but I also really need people and I really need interaction. And I didn't really fit in with engineers anyways. This tattooed, like tattooed muscle. I was a, I was a bodybuilder at, at the same time too. So I just did not fit in. So that's great. We're, we're a lot we're a lot more similar than you think. And, and I just want to reflect that you are for sure a nerd because you have a highlighter in one hand and then you have a pen in the other hand. And, and is that a highlighter? I don't know. I was just, it's like color coordinated pens. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's fucking awesome. So anyways, <laughs> we're very similar. I appreciate this. So I, I have a question for you. I have, I have multiple questions for you. Why has the gut been so overlooked? I think because, and I'm going to call out my friend here. One of my friends recently, he gained a lot of weight after COVID and he got high cholesterol and his cholesterol came back and he was like, Dasha, I, there must be something wrong with my, my heart. I need to get like a scans done. Like my cholesterol is high. And I was like, I'm sorry, but your diet and lifestyle just kind of stunk. Like, I think so many people want to 
prescribed to there's something severely wrong with you there's something very specific wrong with you that we didn't go back to like base one we're just like jumping ahead to something very severe versus wait let's look at the the start at the root what happened with the food that you're eating and how we're digesting that food and if we're actually deficient in our micronutrients and our stress levels and the fact that we work 60 hour work weeks and get no sleep and stuff like that Mm. yeah it's so i think when we talk about the mental health side, I think that we're like, oh, well, of course it starts like in the brain. Cause we say mental health. Right. So it's like mental, like, okay, that, that just try to super simplify. It. It's gotta be the brain, but we don't actually truly hold into, we don't hold in our awareness, the remembrance that how do things get into our body? Like what, like, where does it come from? And there's a, the saying you are what you eat. I don't think people really actually understand how 100% without a doubt that is true. And it's, it's like external things that you absorb, right? Like what, what, what media, who do you surround yourself with? But, but what do you eat? Like if you're eating, um, sugar, a bunch of sugar, which not, it's, you know, we can debate whether that's good or bad, but how could you be anything else but pure sugar? If the only thing you ate was sugar, like I'm, I'm not, you know, a, I'm not a bunch of protein. I'm not a bunch of protein if I eat a bunch of sugar. So like you are, what you eat has to be held so true and, and understood that like, I don't understand how we, so much of our society and world doesn't really understand that but i wanted to to say that because i really want to talk about first and foremost mental health and serotonin production and the idea of why we're starting to hear this saying more and more that our gut is our second brain like what are we what are we saying and what do we mean when when we hear that mm-hmm. um so there's a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, I completely unpack agree. it all. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree that you are what you eat, but even further than that, I like to say you're not what you eat. You're what you absorb because mm-hmm. a lot of people can eat all the healthy things and they'll still feel like crap. And the reason is because they're not absorbing it. So you actually have to be absorbing the food that you're eating. And that could happen a deficiency, right. Of actual proper absorption if you are chronically inflamed and if you're chronically under stress, if you have poor mental health, right, that's eliciting some stress on the system. And the reason being is because when we are stressed, where when we're in this fight or flight mode, it elicits a lot of hormonal production, catecholamines, epinephrine, all these things that then trigger within our guts dysmotility. So When we say serotonin is produced in the gut, they say, what, 90, 95% of serotonin is produced in the gut. This is true. This is true. But that's not the happy hormone. The happy hormone in our brain is actually 5%, and it's actually made in the brain. The neurotransmitter and the serotonin that's made in the gut is responsible for the motility and the actual proper movement of of our gut to digest our food properly. So that being said, 
some of those neurotransmitters, yes, absolutely, they do still access the brain and they travel through the gut-brain axis with the vagus nerve. And that's specifically responsible for connecting the two neurotransmitters and the brain within the gut to the brain to elicit different excitatory or neural transmitter functions. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because I think that to look at our bodies as all these separate entities, as in like our gut, it's separate from the brain as which is separate from our muscular structure or like whatever, you could just go down the list. It it, it just doesn't make sense to me to try to separate these all, all and without without actually really doing the work to understand that like it's one body and it all works together and it was designed in some miraculous way to be what it is. So why would we start to treat everything separately? It doesn't, it doesn't to me ever seem like that's going to allow for a sustainable fix for anything that anybody is struggling with. I'd love for you to dive a little bit further into nutrient absorption. So, so many people work so hard to have the proper nutrition and like to everybody's credit that has gone from a poor nutritional approach to a much, I was going to say a better nutritional approach, but I'll just say like a well-rounded nutritional approach with diversity and foods and micronutrients and macronutrients and all the, we can debate what's, what's good or bad or which way to go. So we're not going to go down that path, but just like the transition from not eating properly to eating whatever you want to call properly is hard. Like that's, it's not like this is like an easy thing to do. And so as you do start to implement a proper way of fueling your body, whatever it looks like for you, why do we end up in a place where it's still not we are still not absorbing the proper nutrients and, and where, where do we start to talk about the root cause of that? Love that. So one of the major things I would say to look for is stomach acid. And some people have very low stomach acid and it's caused by a multitude of things. One is the dysbiosis, the imbalance of good and bad gut flora that can cause low stomach acid secretion. Now, low stomach acid is, our stomach acid is responsible for breaking down proteins. And so if we're not breaking down protein properly, we're not eliciting, we're not absorbing our B vitamins properly. We're not able to get those nutrients out of the food that we're eating because we're not digesting via the stomach acid. That's our first, some, one of our first lines of defense in our bodies. So low stomach acid is one. The second is if you do have this dysbiosis, not only would it be causing low stomach acid, but most likely just by the definition of it, you have an imbalance of good and bad gut flora in your GI your GI microbiota are actually responsible for creating some B vitamins. They literally make the active form of it in our in our intestines. So it's very important that we have enough of those good gut bugs. Now, in order for those gut bugs to be fed, they have to be earlier on in the GI, they have to be digested properly, which is why I'm going back, started with that stomach acid, because the stomach acid has to break down the foods enough to then get and reach the bacteria in your large intestine in order for them to create and 
create that B12 vitamin, the vitamin K, those bacteria feed off of that in order to create our byproducts. Um, I think I answered the question, didn't I? Yeah. And I, and I'll just follow on with this because I want to dive deeper there. So if it starts with the stomach acid, then what are your thoughts? So you could have normal stomach acid, but you have still dysbiosis in the, in the large intestine. So they're two separate, but they do oftentimes come hand in hand. So there could be, they could come independently or both at the same time. They usually come at the same time. Okay, cool. So we are, most of us have heard that it's important to have a, a healthy gut microbiome. So let's say stomach acid production is in whatever you would consider to be normal range and it's working properly. What are your thoughts on prebiotics and probiotics from a supplementation standpoint? And what, if the stomach acid is doing what it needs to do, what then helps us create a proper gut microbiome? So if the stomach acid is doing the right thing, what helps us make a proper gut microbiome? Yeah. Diversity. So this is actually something I'm so glad you asked that because this is something that I kept wanting to bring up earlier on is balanced meals. So something that you talked about was like eating all sugar. The way that I like to describe it and whether this is true or not is to be told because no one has actually done this experiment before, but what I it's a good way to describe it broccoli and asparagus they're both really great for you but they will feed a different bacterial colony in the gut because every single food that we eat is feeding some sort of other bacteria some bacteria whether it be the fiber content or the phytonutrient content or the antioxidants the vitamins the minerals whatever it is that's specific to that fruit vegetable starch protein fat it's going to feed something specific in the gut and it's going to increase the amount of that because it's a substrate that is feeding that bacteria that will then allow it to grow. So when we talk about restrictive diets, only sugar, you're only feeding one type of bacteria that then overgrows, overcolonizes, and now you have not a healthy gut because there is no definition of a healthy gut and an unhealthy gut, unfortunately. We don't have definitions of what the ideal gut looks like All we know, it is the most diverse in species diversity. So how do we do that? We create the most inclusive diet as possible. So if that means changing up your diet every single week, right? And I think that this is one of the hardest things to accomplish because if you're like me, you get stuck in a a pattern where you're just like, I know what I'm going to have lunch, dinner. It reduces the amount of like thinking that I have to do when I'm working so hard every day. But what I like to do is actually go into the grocery store and I will choose a new fruit or vegetable that week that I'll rotate with. And so that'll always keep me kind of on my toes a little bit and making sure that I'm diversifying my intake. So for example, if one week I'm eating rice, the next week I'll go in and be like, all right, I'll eat potatoes this week. And then the next week I'll be like, okay, well, maybe I'll make some buckwheat this week. And, and just constantly like trying out and to trying to include a variety of foods, that's going to actually feed the most amount of bacteria, right? There are going to be so many diverse different species being fed by the sauerkraut that you chose one week, the beets that you choose the next week, the carrots, the broccoli, whatever you choose, it's all going to help to diversify your microbiome and thus make the healthiest gut. 
I, it's so interesting. Is there a certain type of bacteria that would be believed to be more beneficial than not? Because when you say you can feed different bacteria with diversity, so there's a diverse, say we have this diverse gut microbiome. Is there any reason for one to believe that certain mic microbiota, if I'm saying it correctly, are more beneficial than other? And, and how do we know that? Totally. We are learning more and more every single day in the microbiome realm, but for sure, we know that they're commensal. What's interesting too, is some species like Candida or H. pylori or all these like scary ones that you think of, they're actually found in every single body and they help to create a, a proper immune system because they all kind of regulate each other in this healthy world together, right? It's kind of like, if you think about it, if our world was made up of good and bad people, right? If we created like only good people, it would almost be probably quite as disastrous as only bad people, right? Like we kind of need this, I think mix you're right. Balance, right? We need this mix of balance in order to understand certain concepts, but that's a different topic. But anyway, so similar to the world, we kind of need a balance of these good and bad gut bugs in order to understand and modulate our immunity because they form different forms of stress on the system as well. So even parasites might be normal to have in your system if it's helping to regulate your immune system. So it might be a commensal or a non-pathogenic, right? A non-bad source until it starts overgrowing. And now it's all of a sudden that same strain that we once were saying was fine and good in the body becomes actually pathogenic because it starts adhering to the walls. It starts overgrowing in, in copious amounts. That's when it becomes more dangerous. There are certain bacterial strains, even in like probiotics, right? Lactobacillus, bifidobacteria, acromancia, all these things, they're all really great for you to have in our system. And we want to encourage their prosperity, but there's too much of a good thing as well. So if those become overgrowing and there's too much bifido, too much lactobacillus, that can cause a lot of symptoms as well. So again, it's creating that diversity as much as we can, that'll create the healthiest gut microbiome. Mm. Strains that we know are... Now, the other thing too is the strains matter, but also the ratios of the strains. So there's something called the bacterioides to firmicutes ratio. And this one is typically used to kind of give insight on your metabolic dysfunction. So people who have a ratio closer to one are more likely to be obese, suffer from metabolic dysfunctions, inflammation, a lot of perhaps other like insulin problems, et cetera. Whereas those closer to zero are typically less inflamed. They have more of a balance. The thing here that's very interesting is that bacterioides is responsible for, I believe, our immune system and firmicutes is responsible more for our short chain fatty acid production. So it's like both of those things do really great things in our bodies. But again, we want a balance of the two so that the ratio is, is very close to zero. So we want it all to be kind of equal. Yeah. I love it. And I love that you more or less touched on the idea of groupthink. Like groupthink isn't healthy if we all think the exact same thing. It's a great analogy for, you know, what's going on in our body, but it's a great analogy for everything. I'm curious. So you you touched there for a second on immune systems. So like serotonin production, what is it? 70% of our immune system is said to be uh 
said to exist in our gut. Is that the correct metric? I can't remember what it is. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but like how, how would one think about that being true and correct me if I'm wrong and in, in what I'm saying on the immune system being, you know, m- majorly located in the gut and thinking about things like taking antibiotics. Cause I think that there's, there's a lot of conversation around antibiotics and what they then do for the gut microbiome and then how that can later affect your immune system down the road and also your mental health. But we'll just put that to the side for a second. So talk about the immune system, talk about the production and talk about the, just the location of your immune system being in your gut and the idea of how we should think about antibiotics. Yes. So when it comes to immunity and antibiotics, antibiotics kill off the good and the bad gut bugs. Same thing with antimicrobials, right? They kill off the good and the bad gut bugs. This specifically then wreaks that havoc, right? Because we have to restore our good gut flora very quickly, but our all of those bacteria play a pivotal role in modulating our immune system and creating a healthy mucosal layer. Because when we don't have that mucosal layer in cases like leaky gut, right? We see that that mucosal layer is degraded and our in our tight junctions, which are kind of like proteins that are responsible for keeping our cells locked in together in forming our GI lining, they become weakened and they open up. And when those tight junctions open up, we thus let all the toxins in our body, all the whatever is flowing through our body into our bloodstream, which elicits an inflammatory response. IL-6 gets triggers all of our normal cytokine kind of storm response, right? So when it comes to antibiotics and creating a healthy microbiome, it's really important to re- keep a healthy microbiome to keep our lining really tight in order to prevent toxins from entering into our bloodstream and not even toxins, but like food, right? And we can get into like food sensitivity tests, but I don't know if that's the direction you want to go into, but this is why the food that you eat, you might be reacting to it, right? If you're eating a lot of broccoli, you start developing kind of a sensitivity to it. It could be because you have this leaky gut that is quote unquote, right? Leaky gut is not an actual term in the medical community, you have to use intestinal permeability. So mm-hmm. just be aware of that. If you ever bring it up to your doctor and you want to sound smarter, so they take you seriously, you always want to use intestinal permeability. So if you have that increased intestinal permeability, you'll re-reacting to whatever foods you're eating. So this is why food sensitivity tests are inaccurate is because you're literally just taking a test to tell you what foods are naturally found in your diet that you're already eating. And that's also the reason why they work so well is because the person is basically what they were eating, right? Let's say it was that broccoli. Oh, it came up on my food sensitivity test. I eat it all the time. No wonder I'm so sick. It's that's not really the right reasoning, right? I mean, if you didn't take the test and you just swapped out the broccoli for asparagus, like I had just mentioned, you still wouldn't react. You would have cured yourself without spending money on the test. Because again, the test is just showing you the foods that you're eating because that's the food that's coming up and eliciting an allergic reaction essentially because it's leaking through that stomach into the bloodstream and creating an inflammatory response because the body's like, 
I never have had broccoli flowing through my bloodstream. That's not where it's supposed to be. Interesting. So is an elimination diet really just the fact that does it swapping all the foods that you normally eat? Yeah. So like if you're eating too much of one thing and then you stopped eating it, then the bacteria that were feeding off of that food then just start to die off. And then you, is that, is that correct? Like they start to die off and then you're like, oh, well now I feel better. But the fact that you were just overeating one food could have been the cause. Not that you had an intolerance to it, but you were overeating something. So yes, kind of. It's true that they were feeding some sort of overgrowing bacteria, but remember that overgrowing bacteria is what's causing those tight junctions to open up yeah. because, because there's not enough of that diversity to keep that immune system healthy and tight and where it is and the, the lining of your gut to be tight. So when it comes to immunity, a lot of it has to do with the fact that what we put into our body and gets into our body is should be held in the stomach. And if it's not held in the stomach, if we have something like a fissure or something else that's causing it to, or a leaky gut, right. That's causing it to float all of a sudden into our bloodstream and into weird places, our body essentially tells it that's not supposed to be there SOS. And it goes into panic mode. Yeah. It starts to like attack itself. Right. It's kind of like a, it's not necessarily autoimmune, but It'll create those antibodies for that specific protein found in the food that is found. And that's what comes up on the food sensitivity tests. So it's just the that you're naturally eating anyways, because the body's like creates those naturally. And that's a normal part of the digestion too. Like that's a normal process, which is why, again, food sensitivity tests are just crap because it's telling you everything you already know. Yeah. We live in such an upside down world. I'm super curious since you have a, a history in the bodybuilding slash bikini competition world, and maybe your experience was different for me, but when I was bodybuilding, the frequency of eating, my frequency of eating was really high. And so I'm curious to your opinions on, to your opinion on frequency of eating. And then on the, on the tail end of that fasting and what that can do for our overall gut health. So frequency of eating, we're, we're chronically digesting. We're always digesting something. Is that negative? And then on the tail end of answering your opinions on frequency of eating, talk to me a little bit about your opinion on fasting. Did I lose you again? This so will, what this will be interesting to see <laughs> what, actually, what actually recorded. Can you restart? Because I like on my end, it went completely down. Yeah. The last thing that I heard from you was about feedings. So do you want me, do you want to ask the question again? Or would it be helpful if I just, yeah, I'll just in? ask it and I'll ask it. Sure. more concisely. <laughs> what are your opinions on frequency of eating? And then on the tail end of that, what's your opinion on fasting? Awesome question. So there's something called the migrating motor complex in our bodies. And it's basically like this little sweeping system that cleans through our GIs after we eat to just move any extra debris, really focus on any sort of restorative processes that we may need during that time. And that usually happens every two to three hours. So 
typically they like to say, especially if you have some sort of case of an overgrowth, they like to say meal spacing, not necessarily fasting. So right now the evidence of fasting, yes, there are huge benefits for autophagy and things like that. But for the most part, we can pretty much say that that happens in about 12 hours. So if you eat dinner at 6 p.m., you can have breakfast at 6 a.m. and you're probably good to go for the most part. I mean, the data there is still kind of not too sure about the extra two hours or the extra four hours that you would get from like a 16-8 or anything like that. So we like to say that like 12 hours is is fine. And that's what I typically recommend for my athletes as well. I usually work with individuals who have GI issues who are also active, whether it might be bodybuilding or professional sports. And for and I know how important it is to get in those meals and that timing of the food. So with them, I definitely recommend just a 12-hour fast overnight. And then you want to have your first meal within within 30 minutes to an hour of waking. And from there, you want to space your meals three to four hours apart. Sometimes you have to modulate that based off of your gut issues. And sometimes it has to be more frequent than that. Sometimes we have to fast. Sometimes it's, it just depends. So it's definitely person specific. But what I will say is, generally speaking, 12 hours overnight, getting in a solid breakfast is going to be best. And eating like a king for breakfast and then kind of tapering down. I think in the bodybuilding world, at least as a female, I was always taught like save all your calories before bed kind of thing. And it's like the opposite of what we need to be doing is we need to be hoarding more in the breakfast time. So I transitioned to eating that kind of style later on. You say that for, for muscle retention purposes, or why would you Cause you're going from a fasting state to then like replenishing or why, why are you saying that? Yeah. Okay. Yep, exactly. You're right. So we're most sensitive in the morning to it's like insulin sensitive. And so the, the carbs in the, in the morning are going to be the best, but also there seems to be some sort of circadian pattern that they're starting to learn a little bit more about with our metabolism and how we function. And so eating in accordance to kind of that circadian rhythm, waking with the sun, eating with the sun, and then going to bed and fasting overnight. Amazing. Yeah. We, there's a lot of interesting approaches out there. I was going to say, Hey, like what's, what's your opinion on the carnivore diet, but I don't even want to open up that can of worms. It's so, there's so, I just, the thing that is frustrating is there's just so much information out there that any one individual that really wants to start making change in their life is overwhelmed by information and overload. And I totally get it. And that is not my goal. So if you feel super overwhelmed right now and you're listening to this podcast, let's all just take a second to breathe and remind ourselves that this is food and we were literally inherently created to do the these three things, right? Go to, go to the bathroom, eat and sleep. Like no matter what, our bodies knew how to do this when we were born out of the womb. So it can't be that hard to tackle, right? right? Yeah. So we're good. When it comes to nutrition, diversity we said was key, right? So eating the rainbow, something really fun to do is like try and challenge yourself to eat a color from the entire rainbow throughout the day. That's fun to do. But more than anything, just eat balanced meals right? So make sure you're getting in. And the really easy way to do that is think of a circular plate. If you ever want to look, look further into this, it's called the healthy plate, myhealthyplate.gov, I believe. A circle, your plate is about nine, 12 inches. 
half of it should be vegetables, a quarter of it should be protein, and a quarter of it should be a starchy grain or whatever, and then topped with about a tablespoon or two tablespoons of a healthy fat, avocado, olive oil, MCT oil, avocado oil, things like that. And so just build a balanced plate and have it three or four times a day and try and include a lot of diversity. That's it. That's literally the healthiest thing for your gut. That's so that I appreciate that because that's, if there's anything that anybody, you know, I asked all the questions I did because there's so much information out there and it's just like trying to really understand what's really going on. And I love that on the tail end of it, it's like, if, if, if you want to start to improve your overall gut health, your overall health, let's just be honest, let's just start with these simple things. And then having, being equipped with that information that you shared in the beginning of this podcast is also important because then we can understand things to avoid or things to, when we hear the next latest announcement about what's healthy and what's not, then we can actually start to decipher what we should listen to and what we shouldn't listen to. I have a question for you when it comes to fats. So you just mentioned fats. So cannabinoids are fat soluble. If what we've noticed, now I'm not the scientist here, but what we've noticed is with a lot of our products, when they are paired with a healthy fat source, such as a medium chain triglyceride, they seem to be more effective. What might be the case for that since cannabinoids are fat soluble? Awesome. Good question. So the reason being is because MCT oil specifically bypasses normal GI digestion, and it can be readily absorbed by the blood brain barrier. So the actual absorption of the fat is very different than any other fats. So that alone is what helps to equip it and helps to access our brain. That's why when you think of like MCT oil, caprylic acid, capric acid, all of these ones, they are associated. They that's in that like bulletproof coffees and Mm -hmm. things like that for your brain. The reason being is because it passes the blood brain barrier a lot more readily. And so with that, in order to get that cannabinoid into the bloodstream more effectively and more efficiently, that's why it's so much better is because the, the cannabinoid is being absorbed and digested because it needs, it's a fat soluble vitamin. So it'll, that's the only we- only mechanism of absorption for it, for our body. So it needs to be paired with a fat. So once it gets paired with a fat, that's the most important thing. Other, by the way, vitamins A, D, E, and K, all of those, if you're taking a vitamin D and you're not taking it with a meal that's heavy in fats, then you're not absorbing it very well. So same thing with your CBD. So CBD take a fat tea oil is a great one specifically because it will bypass that digestion process a little bit differently and more efficiently. And that's why it's more effective. And you probably see those greater effects in your, in your mind and in the relaxation processes. Yeah. Some people will use, they'll take our CBD oils and they'll put them in. So if you take an oil and you put it underneath your tongue, you can potentially absorb it quicker, but I don't think to the same potency because I, I believe that when you take a capsule and you actually process it through your digestive tract and into the gut, I think that concentration of CBD gets delivered a lot more effectively into your system. This is what I've always hypothesized, but some people will take the oil, the dropper and like put it in coffee or something like that. And I'm like, I don't think you're actually getting the full benefit of the oil by just diluting it in water and then drinking it. I would 
hypothesize that the capsule it's not even water too by the way it's coffee has caffeic acids in it so it has specific acids that are phytonutrients antioxidants but this is also why greens powders i'm not a fan of but it's it all has to do with the fact that we do not know like all of these interactions of like foods and all these new products that we're creating we don't necessarily know what's optimal yet and there are so many different food components that are found in i keep going back to broccoli but for example broccoli or an apple where it's like it's not apple juice right we're eating when we eat a, an apple we eat the fibers on the outside the phytonutrients on the red color on the outside but also the white color on the inside we're talking about specific like acids and vitamins that are making it more acidic tasting versus more sweet tasting like there's so much that goes into a whole fruit that when we strip it of just the juices and all these people are on juice cleanses right but now we've stripped that completely off like I don't even know if there's antioxidants at that point in that juice because antioxidants, polyphenols, they bind to the fibers. And if you strip the fibers, have you stripped a lot of the antioxidants now? I don't, I don't know. And I don't think question. And so that's why it's like, same thing with the coffee. It's like, if you put it under your tongue is actually the coffee making it better because of the caffeine, which is expediting the absorption process, or is the acid changing the molecule itself somehow when we're swallowing it and changing our absorption. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either, but just from an anecdotal experience over the last five years, I've noticed that the capsule swallowed seems to be more effective and more potent than the actual dropper underneath the tongue. I don't, I don't know if that's makes sense, but that's what we've noticed. I've noticed that too. When I take CBD pills, I've also noticed that with interestingly, and heard the opposite with like Vitex and, and this is a hormonal kind of supplement that a lot of people in the industry use to boost their progesterone levels or support healthy progesterone levels. There's like a dropper form of it. And then there's also the pill form of it. I really think it, and, and on top of that too, I think it really depends on the dosing within that specific, yeah. like the processing for that molecule. So this is like the nerd in me, you're eliciting that nerd in me of the biochemistry where it's like, no, guys, let's go back to the actual organic chemistry where we're looking at the molecule and all of the different attachments on it. Like when we start exposing it to basic environments, pH, like high pH environments, those are going to change and shift and create a completely new molecule. So what is, what is our, does our body absorb that actually? And I guess we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I want to be cognizant of your time, but I want to ask one more question and then allow you to share where people can learn more about you. Tell me about misdiagnoses, misdiagnosis. I don't know. Am I saying that correctly? I'm, I'm making stuff up of IBS. So I know that I've seen, I think I saw it on your Instagram. Um, are a bunch of people just being misdiagnosed? What's going on there? So IBS is symptoms. So when you get symptoms, it's just when you go to the doctor and you say, I have bloating, I have diarrhea, constipation, I've mixed. It's just symptoms that the doctor, when they have no explanation further, they kind of label it with IBS. 
And up to 70% of people with this IBS actually just have overgrowth in their small intestine or in their large intestine. Specifically, the 70% statistic is, I believe it's like 3% to 70%. I mean, we really don't know here, but it's up to a lot of people who have actually SIBO and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, specifically in bodybuilders and athletes. I see SIBO all the time just because it's the low stomach acid. Like when we're bulking and when we're cutting, we're allowing our bodies to have seasons of constant low stomach acid, because if we're not eating enough and we're chronic dieting, our bodies are not producing that much stomach acid. If we are chronically pushing food into our system, our bodies can't keep up with producing that much. So we still kind of have low stomach acid for how much we're eating. So with bodybuilders specifically, I see low stomach acid being a huge issue. And that specifically opening up the door for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because the stomach acid is our first line of defense to keep all the pathogens out of the body. So I think that most people with IBS, if they work on kind of the five gut health pillars that I talk about, which is sleep, personal stress, environmental stress, like things like allergies and mold and diet. If you can look at those five things in your life and try and reduce the stressors of those as much as possible, you'll be in good shape. Amazing. Well, I love this and I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours. So maybe we'll need to do a round two, but before we close, can you just share with everybody here on the podcast where they can learn more about you, your company, working with clients individually, share all the good stuff. All right. Well, I have two companies. So first is we work with clients on GI issues, on hormonal issues, and you can go to coreperform.com to learn more about that. You can always go to our Facebook group, coreperform community, and you can also email me directly. My email is coreperformnutrition at gmail.com or support at coreperform.com. Also, I own a protein powder company. So the first thing that all my GI issue kind of clients came to me with they were struggling with keeping up with whey protein from the gym and that caused them to bloat up. So I actually won a, won a, the Tufts competition for this pitch competition. I had PepsiCo calling me the next day for the formula, but I essentially created the same amino acid profile that whey has and put it, made it from plants. So there's 25 grams of protein per scoop, only two grams of carbs, two grams of fat, and it elicits the same one for one scoop, uh, muscle protein response as whey does. doesn't have any gums, no artificial sweeteners, flavorings, et cetera. And you can find that at coreperform.com. If you guys want a code for free shipping, you can use fly, F-L-Y, and that'll hopefully get you going on the first try sample of it. I hope you like it. (laughs) Super cool, Natasha. Congratulations on that. This is you like truly impacting and helping people. And I know that that's why you do what you do. So I hope that you hold that near and dear to your heart and and know that as a fellow entrepreneur, I want to reflect that to you and just appreciate you bringing, bringing the nerd to the table today because I love it. And, and I would love for us to have a second conversation because I think we could go even deeper on a lot of this stuff. So I would uh, love to. Thank you first and foremost, and, and let's continue this conversation. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Cured Collective Podcast. We appreciate you deeply. As mentioned in the beginning of the show, if you learn from it, if you enjoy it, please share it. That's how our mission grows. And of course, use coupon code COLLECTIVE at www.curednutrition.com to save 15% on all of our supplements. We'll catch you on the next show.